Please turn with me now in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. During these um, Sundays of of Advent, we are taking a journey through the the prophets to take a look at, at what they said about the coming of Jesus. And this morning, we are in Malachi chapter 3. It's found on page 802 uh, of the church Bibles. Uh, Of course, the last book in our uh, English Old Testaments, Malachi chapter 3, where we will read this morning verses. um, We'll actually read from verse 17 of chapter 2 through verse 4 of chapter 3. So Malachi, Malachi reading from chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver." And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy, inerrant, and infallible word that is a sure lamp to our feet and a guide to our paths. We pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit as we come to read this portion of your Word, as we come to study it together. Lord, may your Spirit open it to us that we might behold magnificent things. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the exile of God's people in 586 BC was, as we saw last week, a moment of profound spiritual crisis. When the nation of Judah was taken out of the promised land and carried off up and over the fertile crescent and down into Babylon, into modern-day Iraq, it was an event that stunned the Judeans and through the fulfillment of God's covenant promises into significant uncertainty. As the Judeans were marched up and out of Palestine and over that fertile crescent and back down into Iraq, they were with tremendous, this was a journey that was packed with tremendous symbolism that was undoubtedly not lost on them. As they came up and over that fertile crescent, they were retracing the steps of Abraham, and seemingly they were, in a very literal sense, walking back the covenant promises. Do you remember Abraham had come up out of Iraq and over the fertile crescent and down into Palestine in response to God's call? 
In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was an initial covenant that God had made with Abraham that he went then on to expand and elaborate so that by the time we get to Genesis 17, we understand that what God is promising to do through Abraham is bring a great and glorious nation of the redeemed who will be a blessing to all the earth. In response to that call, faithful Abraham had gone up and he had gone over that fertile crescent and he had gone down into the land that God had promised to show him. And from that point on, this land was central to the fulfillment of the covenant promises. God promising to establish there a kingdom for His people, a place of rest and satisfaction where they would dwell securely with Him. But as these exiles retraced Abraham's steps, it seemed as if it was all over. A symbolic returning of the people to the land from whence they came. But as we saw last week, in the grace and mercy of God, it was not the end. And God resolved to not let the sin of humanity frustrate His promises of salvation, and He gave a word of hope to His exiled people, and He told them that they would come back from this exile, and they would come back not just to a restored Palestine, but to a kingdom that was far greater than anything that they had ever seen before a kingdom which would be ruled over by a far greater king than they had ever known. Through Jeremiah, God had promised to them that from that seemingly barren stump that was left in the wake of Babylon's invasion, that seemingly barren stump that His people had become because of their sin and rebellion against Him, yet even from that, God said He would bring a shoot, a branch of David, a rod of Jesse, as we have sung. It was the promise of a godly king who would execute justice and righteousness and who would bring salvation for Judah and security for Israel. It was, it was a gospel. It was a bright and penetrating shaft of light that broke so dramatically into the darkness and despair of the exile. The wonderful promise that God is gracious and He will save His people even in the face of their best efforts otherwise. But by Malachi's day, that seemed so far away. By Malachi's day, sometime around 500 B.C., Cyrus has issued his proclamation releasing the exiles to return to the land and even resourcing them to rebuild. By Malachi's day, the temple has been rebuilt and Jerusalem was emerging from the rubble. But to the people of God, as they stopped and as they looked around, it all seemed so very far away from what God had promised through Jeremiah. 
Yes, the, the temple was rebuilt, but in all honesty, it was a poor imitation of the glories of the one that Solomon had built, that the Babylonians had torn down. Do you remember that, that testimony in, in Nehemiah? That here's the temple reopened and the people rejoice, but the elders, the people who had been there before the exile, who had lived through it, who now saw it, their reaction was not joy, it was weeping. They weren't happy, they were, they were heartbroken because this temple in Jerusalem was a, a shadow of its former glory. And, and more than that, the priesthood was lax, it was corrupt. Instead of ministering in this temple and leading Israel in their worship of God, this was a priesthood that had grown despondent and cynical, and so now just went through the motions almost as if they were just doing the job to get the paycheck. Yes, the people, they were back in the land, but far from it being a place of plenty and abundance, here they were scratching out a living from a land that had been devastated by this invasion and which had then sat as a virtual wilderness for 70 years. And God had promised through Jeremiah most significantly a branch of David, this godly king who would lead to this restored kingdom, and he was just nowhere to be seen. And they still languished under the rule of a foreign empire. And the result was that these returned exiles were, by Malachi's day, disillusioned and downhearted. They had even spilled over into a bitterness towards God, a skepticism that He would ever live up to His Word, that He would ever do what He had said. It is the spirit of the day that's captured in the words of verse 17. Malachi brings the accusation to the people, you have wearied the Lord with your words, and they respond, how have we wearied Him? And Malachi quotes them by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? That, that first quote is, is how it seemed to them. It was the evil who prospered. It was the godly who, who suffered. As they looked around themselves, they said, we, we know what the Word of God says, but we also know reality as it is, and it seems that the Lord is just blessing the ones who do evil, that they are the ones that He actually delights in. He cried out, where is the God of justice? Not, not really as a prayer, but just as an accusation, a complaint that God was not living up to His promises. And so, sure are they in this that I think it is with honest astonishment that they react when Malachi says that they have wearied the Lord with their words, that they react with disbelief because to them this is just a truth self-evident. But into this despondency Malachi comes, and he brings wonderfully not a message of judgment, which we wouldn't be surprised to hear at this juncture, but rather he comes and he brings a promise from God, another promise from God. And to this sorrow and cynicism, God through Malachi promises that this is not how the story is going to end. 
Their disappointment lay in the mistaken belief that the return to Canaan was the return that God had promised. But no, God says there's more to come. He says that there will be a messenger of the covenant who will arrive, and he will come to bless his people and to bring judgment on the evildoers. And that language of messenger can trip us up a little, because to us it, it can seem it can seem weak. Right? We have our, our phrase, don't shoot the messenger, which, if you're anything like me, conjures up mentally an image of, a, of an innocent intermediary, a, ch- a child maybe even, carrying a, a message from one power broker to another. But I think we need to think in different terms. I think better we need to think in diplomatic terms. An ambassador carries the weight and the authority of the government they represent. In a sense, they are a messenger. Their job is to communicate the message of the government they represent to the country in which they live. But they are also entrusted with a certain level of power to execute. Their job isn't simply as a go-between, but rather as the representative of the government in the place where they are sent. That's what is being promised here. Not just another prophet who is coming to bring a message from God, but, but a messenger of the covenant who is coming with a power to execute. Right? Look at what we're told about him in verse 2. Who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. You understand, that's an image of a man who comes with power. It's even an image of a man who comes with with a daunting power. That, That opening question, who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? It's a question that conveys the the level of the authority that this man will bring, an authority that will strike dread in the hearts of those who are opposed to his cause. And in even that, that illustration that follows, in which he is described as a launderer or a or a metal refiner, there's a there's a level of of violence that is being communicated there. The refining of of metal is not something that's done gently. It's it's done with with roaring flames to burn away the impurities from the metal. And and laundry in in 500 BC wasn't much gentler. Right? We, to us, laundry's benign. You, You stick it in a white rectangle, and it does its thing, and then you stick it in another white box, and then it's done. But in 500 BC, these launderers, these foolers, would take the clothes, and they would, they would rub them with, with a strong lye soap. They would even burn their hands and their work, and then they would beat the, the cloth on, on rocks with, with big sticks. 
It wasn't a gentle occupation. A launderer, a fooler, would have been a man of, of muscle with scarred hands. There was a violent occupation in which he was involved. And so this messenger of the covenant, is, it is clearly being communicated, is going to be a man of power. A man of even intimidating authority before whom corruption will not stand. Right? This is the warning that a heavenly messenger will come as the validator of God's covenant promises. And he will come and he will execute judgment against those who have abused the people of God and tried to use the promises of God for their own glory and not his. Now, if we put ourselves back in the position of those to whom Malachi first spoke, this could seem like another warning of exile. Right here are these returned Judeans living in the midst of covenant corruption. Here they are, neglected by their priests. Here they are, grumbling against God. And it might seem that this is a warning that God is not done with them, and there is simply more pain and suffering that they will have to endure. But when we look closer, and when we press these metaphors, we see that this promise, as violent as an, and as intimidating as it is, this is a gospel promise. This is a message of, of hope. This promise of this coming messenger of the covenant is a promise of vindication for God's people. It is a promise of protection for God's people. It's a promise that no longer will the wicked hold sway and lead astray but that God will come and remove them. And in doing so, he will, he will beautify his church. Right? In a sense, the exile was a blunt force action. Everybody was affected by the exile. Everybody suffered because of the exile, even the godly remnant like, like Daniel. But there's a precision about what this messenger of the covenant will do. He will come with a strong judgment, but it will be a selective one. Right? The launderer, the refiner, for all the strength and the violence in their work, these are men who are not in the business of destruction. Right? Their sole goal is to make the thing with which they work better, to make it more beautiful, to free it from the burden of its contaminants so that its beauty can shine forth. That, Malachi is saying, that is what this man will do. One commentator describes this beautifully by describing the process of silver refinement. This is one of these metaphors where I think we can catch some of the meaning, but of course, who refines metal. I remember the only time that I've seen it was in uh, uh, the open golf tournament in the exhibition tent. There was a, a, a booth that sold old hickory putters. And the man, would, the maker would sit there and he had a, he had a bowl of, of lead that was melted over a flame and he was refining it to pour it into the back of that. It's the only time I've ever seen a metal refiner. You probably not come across it very often either. And so it helps us to think about what is being described here. And 
So this commentator says that the silversmiths of the time would sit over their, their little pots, and during their work, they would stare into it, looking to see by the color of the metal whether or not it had yet achieved purity. So silver ore, when it's molten, it gives off oxygen. And so it's treated with charcoal to prevent it from reabsorbing the oxygen of the air as it cools, because if it does, it would lose its luster. And so as the, as the purifier sits and he gazes in and he, he tries to gauge the point of purification, he knew that the process of purifying was complete and all the dross was burned away when suddenly the silver became a liquid mirror in which the refiner could see his own reflection. And you understand how that gives us an insight into what is being described here. This messenger of the covenant is coming, Malachi says, to eliminate the corruption amongst the people of God so that they could shine and reflect the glory of God. In the Garden of Eden, Humanity had been created, you remember, distinct from all the other creatures that God had made. Humanity made like the animals. Humanity made on the same day as the animals. Humanity endowed with a DNA that makes them almost indistinguishable from animals, but humanity not made as animals because they were made distinctly in the image and the likeness of their God. Unlike anything else in all of creation, humanity was to be the representation of God in creation. They were to be the representation of God in creation, reflecting His glory and His goodness. But of course, that, corruption, that image has been corrupted by the fall, not entirely, but enough that humanity has been reduced down to animalistic tendencies, giving in to urges and passions, hating one another, devouring one another, and brutally rebelling against the God whose image we bear. It is what had been so painfully evident before the exile. Even with all of their advantages, even with the temple and the land and the sacrifices and the Word of God, there remained in the people a deep corruption that had led them to follow their hearts rather than the law of God. It's what was so painful now as they lived in a semi-restored Palestine. They had seen the goodness and grace of God in bringing them not just to exile but through exile and bringing them home again, but now the old cycles were repeating, the sin remained, the corruption was still there. They needed a greater salvation. And here God says, it is coming. A day will come when He will send a messenger who will bring a purification that will go down deep, that will eliminate the corruption so that the glory of God will again radiate out of His people. It's the promise of a messenger of the covenant who will come to make all things new. And of course, it is Jesus who is that messenger. It is at Christmas that we celebrate the coming of this messenger of the covenant in the person of Jesus Christ, 
born in Bethlehem to bring the final and full application of the covenants. We celebrate Jesus Christ sent from heaven to finally and fully deal with the sin of His people and give them new life, a life that is no longer driven by self-centered pride, which every sin has as its root, that complete anti-God state of mind that C.S. Lewis called it. But instead of being driven by our pride, this new life is one that looks outward. It sets its affections on God in whose image we have been made. It's a new life that doesn't seek pleasures and peace in places where it cannot be found, but instead is focused on glorifying God and enjoying Him, exalting, exulting in God as we exalt God. That's what Paul described in Romans, wasn't it? Having described in the first 11 chapters the work of Jesus, in a sense, the first 11 chapters of, of Romans being Paul's exposition of Jesus' work as this messenger of the covenant, bringing renewal and restoration through the destruction of sin. Those first 11 chapters, Paul rotating the diamond for us to show us the intricacies and the totality of what Jesus has done to remove from us the dirt and the dross of our sin, to cleanse us from our guilt, to make us pure and beautiful, to reflect the image of our God. After those 11 chapters, in Romans 12, Paul brings the great conclusion. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, now that we have seen what it means for us to, to behold the depths of our corruption, but then to see the glories of Christ as a messenger of the, this covenant, offering himself on the cross to, to cleanse us from this filth and this, this dross. He says, what is the great therefore, what is the great consequence? It is that now you live and present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to Him. You live a new life with new priorities and new desires and new affections. It's not far from being a paraphrase of Malachi 3.3, is it? What is the result of Christ's work as the Redeemer? It is that our hearts would be renewed and our affections realigned and we bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. What does Malachi envision through the work of the messenger of the covenant? It is a people whose hearts are cleansed from their sin and so who now delight in their God. If you are united to Christ by faith, if you trust in His work as this covenant mediator, then Malachi and Paul, both in agreement and concert, are saying, then you are brought back to God. Your sin is destroyed, and you are freed simply now to delight in Him. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what we celebrated this time of year is the gospel of Christmas, the, the good news that the waiting is over, the, this messenger has come, the covenants have been fulfilled, and in him all of our sin has been washed away, and we have been reconciled to God, and we are now free to enjoy him. 
In verse 1, Malachi mentions another messenger, one who would precede this messenger of the covenant and prepare the way for him. That messenger was, of course, John the Baptist, or, or better, I think, as the Eastern Church calls him, John the Forerunner, who came to make straight the way of the Lord and to prepare the hearts of the people for the arrival of this Savior. In Luke chapter 1, we find a song that John the Forerunner's father sang about him, sang over him. He sang about the Savior whom John would go before. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That, Malachi says, that is the song that we all sing at Christmas. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these passages in our Old Testaments that show us the beauties and the glories of Christ. Again, Father, we thank you that in your goodness we do not come to these promises as our Old Testament brethren came to them, as promises of something yet to come. We thank you that as we come to them now, 2,000 years after the birth of our Lord Jesus, we come and we see how these promises have found their yea and their amen in him, how they have come to their fulfillment in him. And so we now rejoice in promises made and promises fulfilled. Oh, Father, help us now and help us throughout this season to meditate upon the glories of our Lord Jesus, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.